Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds, this is Amit Goyal. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Oncology Series, co-chaired by Drs. Theodora Donison, Giselle Suero, and Dinu Belenescu. We have a unique episode prepared for you today. By definition, cardio-oncology is a multidisciplinary field, and today we will simulate the ideal world clinical environment of cardio-oncology practice by summoning a multidisciplinary meeting with our friendly neighborhood oncology colleagues. Chairing today's meeting is Cardio's House Chief, Dr. Theodore Adonison, First Year Cardiology Fellow at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey there, Theo. Hi, Amit, and hi, Cardio Nerds. I'm thrilled by today's episode. We're so fortunate in the Cardio Nerds space to have our oncology colleagues an email or phone call away and available for a multidisciplinary meeting. I want to introduce you to the fellow leading today's episode, Dr. Philip Ionescu. Philip is a hematology oncology second year fellow at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. Fun fact. Philip and I actually trained at the same medical school in Romania and then the same internal medicine residency at Beaumont and Royal Oak, Michigan, and we both had our first kids around the same time. I'm happy to call him a dear colleague and friend and my go-to oncology resource when I'm not sure about the cardiotoxicity of a novel cancer immunotherapy. We're very excited to have Philip join our multidisciplinary meeting today as an oncologist passionate about cardio-oncology. Thank you, Teo. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we will also be joined by Dr. Sarah Waliani, Internal Medicine Chief Resident at the Stanford University. She's a recipient of the Stanford Tram Grant, a specialty content editor for Jack Cardioncology, and has authored 20 peer-reviewed publications, including two first author manuscripts in Jack Cardioncology during her time as an internal medicine resident. After her chief resident year, Sarah plans to pursue a fellowship in hematology and oncology and she ultimately plans a career in thoracic oncology. Welcome to CardioNerd, Sarah. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for having me on this really important CardioNerds episode. This episode, we have the privilege of learning from Dr. Susan Dent, a medical oncologist and professor of medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine, where she also serves as associate director of breast cancer clinical research and co-director of the cardio-oncology program. Dr. Dent has had a pivotal role in the creation of the field of cardio-oncology. In 2011, she founded the Canadian Cardio-Oncology Network, a not-for-profit organization focused on determining the best way to mitigate the cardiovascular toxicity of anti-cancer treatment, and in 2015, she launched the Global Cardio-Oncology Summit, an international annual meeting focused on disseminating emerging cardio-oncology research. Welcome, Dr. Dent. We are thrilled and grateful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm really excited about this episode and having the opportunity to speak to you today. Dr. Dent, can you share with us how you first got interested in cardio-oncology as a field? Sure. I think that's a very important question. I um, was a breast cancer treater in Ottawa, Canada, and I happened to be at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting when they presented the data on the clinical benefit of trastuzumab, a monoclonal antibody to be used in women with HER2-positive breast cancer, showing the significant clinical benefit in terms of disease-free survival and overall survival. And so we went back to our clinical centers and everyone's extremely happy and 
excited about using trastuzumab for our patients. But the one thing that we didn't realize is that trastuzumab as a HER2 target agent does have potential cardiotoxicity. So we started to see drops in left ventricular ejection fraction. And as an oncologist, we really didn't know what to do with that. We didn't know what it meant. Some of my colleagues were holding treatment. We were calling up cardiologists. They didn't even know how to pronounce the word trastuzumab, let alone know how to help us. So I nearly sat down over coffee with my three cardiology colleagues and said to them, gee, you know, we have to solve this problem. We have to work together so that we can give, you know, women the best cancer therapy without causing cardiovascular issues. And it was that coffee conversation, literally, that led to us developing a clinic in Ottawa, Canada, which was the first cardio-oncology clinic in the country, and I'd argue probably one of the first clinics in North America. From there, it blossomed. People became interested. I started holding an annual meeting. I established the Canadian Cardio-Oncology Network, and I continued to go and travel to any meeting I could find with like-minded individuals who were interested in this space. So that's really what has driven me for over the last decade or more into truly trying to improve the cardiovascular care of our cancer patients. You know, while we think of medicine as being sort of a comprehensive specialty, and it is, I would argue that we still work in silos. And it's important that we break down those barriers and we start looking at individuals more holistically and treating them as individuals, not as a cardiology patient or an oncology patient. Wow, that's excellent. I think it's a really exciting story of essentially seeing a need and addressing it yourself rather than waiting a couple of years until somebody comes out with the studies. So you basically got in on the ground level of this emerging specialty and pretty much created a specialty in the process. And can I add that there was really a lot of resistance to doing this at the beginning, so it wasn't an easy task oncologists didn't want to acknowledge that they were causing any cardiovascular issues and cardiologists didn't really want to think about dealing with cancer patients. And so it was really a marriage of two specialties that was not easy to obtain, but we got around it, we did it. And, you know, I actually went out and raised resources on my own to sort of get this going. It wasn't something where I had any support at the beginning. And you're right, I think it was really identifying what I thought was an important clinical need. And it's really grown from what people originally said, oh, it's just breast cancer. It's not really enough to call it, especially to now, as you know, today, it really transcends all cancer patients, whether they have solid or hematological malignancies, and it transcends all cancer therapies. So I I think you bring up a very good point, Dr. Dent, in saying that as oncologists, sometimes we don't necessarily want to take a hard look at potentially the problems that we're creating with the treatment, we tend to get a little over-focused on our primary target, which is treating the cancer. And we, we may be, well, not necessarily ignoring, but kind of putting in the background the side effects and the collateral damage there, which is obviously extremely important as well. Well, I think for tonight, we have a few complicated cases that we're planning to discuss. So we're very lucky to have you and, uh, and to benefit from your expertise. But first, Dr. Dent, we wanted to congratulate you on the publication of the first cardio-oncology guideline, which was recently published by the ESC. So this is a a bit of a crowning achievement to to your original efforts. So congratulations from all the cardio nerds. I was wondering if, before starting this conversation, if you could talk a little bit through the baseline risk stratification and cardiovascular assessment before chemotherapy. 
Yes, and thank you for acknowledging this guideline that was just published not only by, you know, the European Society of Cardiology, but in collaboration with the International Cardio-Oncology Society, which is a, a society actually I'm very fortunate to just have been taken over as president of the society, uh, a group of over 700, you know, interested healthcare providers from over 20 countries. So we're very fortunate that this was a collaborative effort with many players involved. This document, which is 133 pages long, so is a lot to digest, really is the pivotal paper looking at how do we manage cancer patients in terms of prevention, you know, management of cardiovascular toxicity, and obviously management of patients into survivorship. A lot of this document does focus on risk assessment and risk stratification. And I think that's very important because as you pointed out earlier, as oncologists, we're very well trained to look at the cardiovascular toxicity of a particular drug. So for instance, if it's an anthracycline, we say you can't go above a certain dose, life, lifetime dose, which we know used to be 450 milligrams per meter squared, and then it was lowered to 250. But we focused on looking just at the cancer drug. What we have not done as a specialty is recognize that it's more than just the cancer therapy or the cancer drug. And so what this guideline does is it has developed a risk stratification models what they've done is they've done that for different classes of drugs, recognizing that each class of drugs, such as the anthracycline or HER2 target therapies, impact the cardiovascular system differently. So they created a scoring system where you look not only at the drug class that you're giving that patient, but you also look at things such as their underlying cardio risk factors. You look at if they have any history of cardiovascular disease or coronary artery disease, it also incorporates lifestyle factors such as smoking, obesity, inactivity, as well as age. And when you look at the class of drugs you're given, use a point system or at least a ranking system of low, medium, or high risk. When you add all these together, it tells you essentially, is this patient that is just about to start their cancer therapy at low, moderate, or high risk of experiencing cardiovascular toxicity? And so then, there's guidance in the document about where do you go from there. So if they're obviously at high risk, there's suggestions that what you might do and referral to a cardiologist with expertise in cardio-oncology versus the other one, if they're at low risk, you know, you continue on with your treatment. And so really it's kind of a pathway, a clinical pathway to help guide clinicians in determining, you know, what the risk is for that patient. I should point out that this is really highlights previous work that we did two years ago, what we called Performa, Risk Gratification Performa, were published two years ago. And although it's gaining increasing acceptance, they're still you know, not been tested prospectively. There are studies ongoing looking at whether or not these will predict cardiovascular toxicity, but it's the best risk stratification model and tool that we have at the present time. And so I think this is one of the key elements of this guideline is looking at how we risk stratify patients, which then will guide us as to how we can manage them and ideally actually how we can prevent cardiovascular toxicity. 
Thank you, Dr. Dent. That was an excellent theoretical framework for our subsequent discussion here. And I think we can just start with a case which can illustrate some of those points and how they can be applied in a clinic. And it can actually serve as a platform for multiple discussion points moving forward. So we have Mrs. Desra Zane, who's a 42-year-old woman with locally advanced triple negative breast cancer, who we are seeing in the oncology office prior to her final cycle of neoadjuvant treatment. Her initial screening mammogram had shown a 3.5 centimeter mass with irregular calcifications. She had an enlarged firm lymph node in her right axilla, which was biopsy proof of metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Uh, staging imaging was negative for distant disease, and she desired breast conserving therapy, and she started treatment five months prior with chemoimmunotherapy, with an overall plan for six months of pembrolizumab concurrently with three months of carboplatin and paclitaxel, followed by three months of doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide. At today's visit, she complains of dyspnea on exertion, bilateral leg swelling, and having to sleep in a recliner for the past week due to shortness of breath. I noticed Mrs. Desra was receiving doxorubicin, which is an anthracycline. As you mentioned, Dr. Dent, earlier, this medication class is well known to cause cardiomyopathy, an issue so important that it was actually one of the reasons why cardio-oncology appeared as a field. Dr. Dent, I was wondering if you could tell us more about the risk factors for anthracycline-associated cardiotoxicity and whether there's anything that can be done to prevent it. Thank you for that question. Yes, clearly anthracyclines have been around since the 1970s and have been really fundamentally important in the treatment of many cancers, including breast cancer. We know, as I alluded to earlier, that the cardiotoxicity associated with anthracyclines is dose-dependent. So obviously, the dose that this individual would be receiving places or her at risk. But we know that's not the only risk. So there have been some studies done showing that other risk factors include age. So the older the individual is, the higher the risk. She's quite young at 42. Generally, we think of the highest risk of being a 65 or older. We know that if you have a baseline LVF in the low normal range between 50 to 54%, that places you at higher risk. Obviously, previous cardiovascular disease places you at higher risk, including risk factors such as diabetes or hypertension. And of course, lifestyle factors such as obesity, smoking, and physical activity. So that's where all of these things have to be taken in, into consideration when you're looking at this woman's individual risk. So in reading the case of this patient, I did receive that she is getting, you know, anthracyclines as part of the Keynote 522 regimen. I did not notice whether she had any underlying baseline risk factors outside of the anthracyclines that you already mentioned. Great, Dr. Dent. Thank you for outlining the risk factors and talking about risk factors for anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity. We are anticipating risk. And in anticipating risk, how do you monitor patients on treatment with anthracyclines? And as a follow-up, does a prior history of anthracycline exposure change your approach? So another good question. I mean, we know that those patients going on anthracyclines really should have at baseline an echocardiogram to assess their baseline LVEF. Now, generally, we do global longitudinal strain with that as well to give us an idea of earlier onset potential cardiotoxicity. In addition, one thing that perhaps we don't do very well in oncology but is recommended in this guideline is a 12-lead ECG. Not only is it a relatively inexpensive test to get, but it does give us some opportunity to look at any potential underlying 
cardiac disease that we may not have picked up on the history alone. And then finally, in those patients who are deemed at moderate to high risk, there is now more consensus that doing cardiac biomarkers such as BMP and, and troponins, particularly if you're going to follow them from cycle to cycle, may help you determine if someone is getting into problems with cardiovascular toxicity, in this case, anthracycline cardiotoxicity. So for those individuals at low risk, I would say at least an ECG and an echocardiogram to assess their LVF. For higher risk patients, or at least moderate to high for sure, biomarkers, the evidence surrounding, you know, the use of biomarkers in lower risk patients is still somewhat, it's not controversial, but we don't have the same level or the degree of evidence to support that. So those are things that you can do to determine, you know, try and follow their risk. If they do develop cardiovascular toxicity, obviously such this patient, you know, she's complaining of dyspnea on exertion, then that's yet a different approach. Right. And those patients, we have to stop and we have to look at strategies to try and prevent further cardiovascular toxicity. So in this case with this patient, obviously, you know, you would repeat her cardiac imaging. Uh, you would look to see where she was and stop her therapy, have a discussion with the cardiologist and look at perhaps neurohormonal strategies that might help improve her symptoms. And I'm assuming you know, her EF, or it may even be heart failure without a reduced ejection fraction, but neurohormonal strategies such as ACE inhibitors or ARBs or beta blockers could certainly be added to her regimen to try and at least improve her symptoms. The next question then becomes, let's say you do add those in and you improve her overall clinical picture, she's not as symptomatic, do you reinstitute anthracycline-based chemotherapy? In this case, she was on her final cycle. And that's where a multidisciplinary discussion really needs to take place between the cardiologist, the oncologist, the patient, and probably the pharmacist as well, looking at the risk-benefit ratio of whether adding, you know, one or two more cycles is really going to be clinically beneficial in terms of her cancer therapy. If you were in a situation, and I'm not saying it is in this particular patient, but if you were in a situation where you absolutely think that you would like to proceed with more anthracyclines and you've managed to, you know, get the patient into a situation where they're no longer symptomatic, they're stable, their LVF is stable, then you could consider other forms of doxorubicin, such as liposomal doxorubicin, which is a pegylated encapsulate doxorubicin, which is not as cardiotoxic as doxorubicin itself. And there are other sort of protective strategies such a compound called desrozoxane, which is also cardioprotective and has been given in patients who continue to receive anthracycline. So those are just some strategies, but I think the most important thing to do in this case with this patient is stop, look where you're at, assess her cardiovascular function, start her on therapy, get her into a better spot, and work closely with the oncologist to determine whether she can continue, and importantly, whether she needs to continue with her cancer therapy. Thank you, Dr. Dan, for your overview of um, so many essential items in the management of patients with anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity. You basically told us what we need to assess in every patient if they're at low risk, moderate, high, or high risk of cardiotoxicity, echo, EKG, biomarkers, 
You've also discussed the fact that we need a multidisciplinary discussion if we think about re-challenging them with anthracyclines. But you've also given us some hints on the modern methods to kind of prevent anthracycline toxicity. I was also wondering, based on this new ESC guidelines, this patient appears to have symptomatic anthracycline-associated cardiomyopathy, right? Dr. Dent, how do you approach this diagnosis and what are some management strategies based on severity? Yeah, so based on severity, again, optimize their cardiovascular risk factors, treat their heart failure if, in fact, they're, I don't know in this case what her ejection fraction is at this point, but assuming it's lower, treat that or treat her heart failure as per, you know, the current AHA-ACC guidelines using ACE inhibitors or beta blockers you have access to. There's also evidence now for statins that may help. And then, you know, if you need to continue gingerly, then the recommendation would be very, very close monitoring. So if this patient were to get better and you wanted to institute the anthracyclines, you could certainly would probably repeat her echocardiogram every two cycles while you continued on this therapy until you reached a point where, you know, she had completed her therapy. Where this gets a little bit harder is in patients, obviously, that are on more prolonged therapy or higher doses. So, you know, there is always that risk-benefit analysis. And in this case, depending on the severity of her heart failure, that would dictate, and a response to therapy, that would dictate whether you'd be able to continue or not. That was an excellent discussion. Before we move on to a different case, I did want to briefly change the variables of the first one to change it from a triple negative breast cancer to a HER2 positive breast cancer. Of course, now we're also talking about HER2 low cancers with the Destiny Breast 04 trial. We anticipate we'll greatly expand the indications of HER2 directed therapy, and these have their own toxicity profile, particularly cardiotoxicity profile. How does the toxicity of trastuzumab differ from that of anthracyclines? And is there any way to predict and or to prevent trastuzumab-related cardiotoxicity? So thank you for asking that question. We certainly have learned more about trastuzumab or her two targeted agents and their cardiotoxicity. Compared to anthracyclines, they are clearly different. So anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity, you actually get death of the cardiac myocytes. So you lose them, they drop out. And, you know, traditionally, it was felt that that was irreversible damage. Now, we know from studies that have been done from some of my colleagues in Italy, especially Danielle Cardinelli, that if you follow people even with anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity, if you catch it early, it is partially reversible with um, neurohormonal strategies. However, largely patients aren't followed that closely. And so you do often see permanent drops in their LVF and cardiomyopathy. With trastuzumab, it appears to be more of a stunning of the heart. So we learn quite quickly that if you hold the trastuzumab in the face of patients who have drops in their LVF and repeat their echocardiogram several weeks later, often it will recover and you may not even need any intervention other than time. And so, you know, recognizing the difference, even though it's different than anthracyclines, when the HER2 targeted therapies were developed, mainly trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting or in early stage breast cancer, the FDA was very concerned about the potential of cardiotoxicity with this agent. And so, you know, women were monitored pre-therapy 
and every three months while they're on their one year of trustees who have therapy. And so we have a tremendous amount of data because of that. And what we discovered is that if women run into trouble with trastuzumab, they tend to do it fairly early. And as I alluded to before, if we hold their therapy, then they tend to recover. Not all, but the majority. For those women who do drop down to LVFs, let's say that are less than 50%, then there is some evidence to support adding in, again, neurohormonal strategies such as an ACE inhibitor or a beta blocker, et cetera, to permit you to continue your HER2-targeted therapy. So for instance, if you have you know, mild drop in LVF and you're in the 40 to 49% range, you can add one of those drugs and continue with close monitoring the HER2-targeted therapy. For those who have severe drops in LVF, then goal-directed therapy or guideline-directed therapy, of course, is important. Watching to see if they, you know, working with the multidisciplinary team is important. And really then looking at the risk-benefit ratio. So in those cases, when they're that low, you might want to hold the therapy, see if guideline-directed therapy improves their overall function, talk with the oncology team to see where they're at in their treatment and how important it is to continue And if they do recover, and often they can recover, then it may be reasonable to restart their therapy. We do have some very small studies that were done, ones called Safe Heart, looking at women with early and advanced HER2-positive breast cancer who did have, you know, LVFs in the range of 40 to 49%, and with appropriate therapy, they were able to continue their HER2-targeted therapy without any significant consequences and without developing any overt symptomatic heart failure. So there is a lot of material that we've learned about for two target therapies, and I think there is many options now. I think where it gets tricky, and that this is when you're dealing with individuals with metastatic or advanced for two positive breast cancer, and I've had patients myself where they're heart function, their LVF is in the sort of in the 35% range and they're on therapy and they're responding nicely to treatment. And this may be the best treatment for that individual. How do you manage those patients? Because they clearly fall outside the guidelines. They never would have qualified for any of the clinical trials. They're in that sort of no-go zone of heart failure. Those are especially difficult patients to manage. And that's where I rely on my colleagues, both locally, nationally, and internationally. And that's why I think it's so important to reach out to your colleagues to manage these people, because otherwise they may not have many other choices for their cancer therapy. So while we're concerned about their heart failure, what can we do about their cancer? It's a really difficult situation to be in, but one that really deserves, I think, for our patients, a conversation and really drives me to think the whole field of cardiology has to really move to improve our ability to offer these people what at that point would be considered life-sustaining therapy. I think that was an excellent point that you brought up and I think an often neglected point, which is what is the goal of what we're trying to do? And within that goal, is the goal cure or is the goal just palliative in nature? So that kind of tells us how aggressive we can or should be. 
And second, what is the duration of treatment based on that goal? Is it a short-term treatment or a long-term treatment? So just to jump off of that, I think we can talk a little bit about the more novel HER2-directed agents, which are actually very different from trastuzumab. Talking about antibody drug conjugates that in addition to the anti-HER2 antibody also include a chemotherapy payload such as TDM1 and TDXD. Now, is there any difference based on data or based on your experience in the cardiotoxicity of these agents as compared to trastuzumab? You know, that's a very good question because we do now have these antibody drug conjugates, which have made significant gains in terms of clinical progress for our patients. It's just incredible what we're seeing in the clinic in patients in the advanced setting and now also in the adjuvant setting. And I did actually, with my pharmacist, put together a paper. We published this about a year and a half ago, looking at all the new HER2-targeted agents. Surprisingly, we're not seeing any more cardiotoxicity with these antibody drug conjugates. Now, recognizing that the majority of data that we have are from clinical trials, that we have limited experience in the real-world setting. But overall, my experience has been in the clinic that I'm not seeing high rates of cardiotoxicity related to these antibody drug conjugates. So that's encouraging. However, a word of caution, I still think it's early and our experience is early. And I think what we're now seeing is we're seeing patients who will be exposed to multiple HER2-targeted therapies. So they may go from trastuzumab and pertuzumab. They may then have TDM1. They may then go on to TDXD. And so what we need a better understanding of is what are the consequences of sequential exposure long-term to HER2-targeted therapies? And that's really a question that we don't have an answer for at this time because we haven't had these drugs around that long in the setting. The really encouraging thing, though, is which really excites me is that now in the HER2 positive event setting with these drugs, we are seeing overall survival of greater than 60 months, meaning overall survival greater than 60 months in this patient population. That is truly amazing. Hi, all. It's Dino Bellinescu, one of the other cardio-oncology series co-chairs along with Teo and Giselle. Now, I was just moonlighting in the cardio nerds cardio-oncology clinic, and I'm, I'm seeing this patient, and I, I'm just at a loss. And I heard Dr. Dent was here, so I was wondering if I could jump in for a curbside for my clinic patient. Always happy to help if I can. Well, thank you so much. Now, still waiting for us is a 48-year-old male with no medical history other than recently diagnosed locally advanced node-positive rectal cancer. He opted for an organ preservation strategy, which consists of neoadjuvant chemotherapy with Folfox, a regimen which contains 5-fluorouracil and oxaloplatin. Given his goal, he needed active chemotherapy at optimal doses to achieve a response. On the second day of his first 5-FU infusion, he developed substernal chest pain. The infusion was stopped, and he was admitted to the hospital where electrocardiography showed ST-segment elevations in the anterior leads. He was taken emergently for catheterization, but he had normal coronaries and a normal ventriculogram. His chest pain resolved shortly before the procedure. Echocardiography showed a normal LVEF and no wall motion abnormalities. Now, Dr. Dent, how frequently do you see fluoropyrimidine-induced cardiotoxicity in your practice? What happened to our patient here, and are there any specific risk factors or management considerations for this? So that's a good question. 
I mean, I'll confess that I treat breast cancer. Of course, I used to treat colorectal cancer, but the key here is that 5-FU is a common drug that's used in a variety of cancers, including breast cancer. I use it differently. We give our patients capsidabine, which is a pro-drug that's converted in the liver into 5-FU. But it's sort of the same as giving sort of an infusion of 5-FU. The one thing that we have seen with this drug is that patients do present to our emergency departments with ischemia and angina-like pain, um, which is thought to be due to coronary vasospasm and endothelial injury. And so this typically tends to occur shortly after their treatment. So if in full fox, if it's a bolus, it's within a few hours, maybe up to one or two days afterwards. And it tends to occur early on in their therapy, i.e. within the first one or two cycles. The incidence really varies depending on the amount of five of you they're getting. So are they getting just a quick bolus or are they on an infusional pump and getting it for four or five days? And it depends on their mode of administration. So we know that those patients that are on IV 5-FU infusion pumps are at much higher risk of getting this form of cardiotoxicity compared to those patients who have a bolus. So having said that, you know, bolus patients, the incidence is about 3%, let's say 3 to 5%. But in those patients on infusional 5-FU, it can be a bit higher than that, you know, maybe 10% or higher. And so there is a wide range of incidents reported in this. When you talk about risk for this population, I think obviously the higher risk group would be those patients probably with pre-existing coronary artery disease, and which you may not know at the time that you, you know, prescribe this therapy. So obviously, if the underlying mechanism is vasospasm and they already have significant coronary artery disease, I think that would also predispose these patients to experience these cardiotoxicity. So that other risk factors, of course, you know, because this can injure the endothelium, such as underlying risk factors, such as diabetes, smoking, and so on, all contribute. But I think really the one that makes me think of more is the underlying coronary artery disease. And so that's what I think about when I think about risk for these patients. But just let me sort of give you a quick story about how I was sort of introduced to this sort of cardiotoxicity in the space that I got called about a, a patient of ours in the emergency room and they were having chest pain and this pain wouldn't go away. They were giving them nitrates, nothing would help. They transferred them to our coronary unit. The patient underwent a cath. Cath was clean, you know, no coronary artery disease, went back to the recovery room. And then finally, one of the nurses called me and said, you know, this patient's wearing a pump. And I'm just wondering maybe what's going through this pump. And it turns out the entire time they went through that workup, no one had noticed that they had a pump that actually was infusing the patient with 5-FU. So <laughs> moral of the story is, first of all, <laughs> make sure that you find that out. But if they are, of course, you know, if they do experience this type of cardiotoxicity, you have to stop the drug and reevaluate reevaluate whether you think continuing treatment would be a benefit because certainly the risk of experiencing angina or ischemia when patients are rechallenged is fairly high. I know that my colleagues do rechallenge these patients. 
when they are rechallenged, they often give them nitrates and calcium channel blockers. And if they are, certainly it has to be done in, in a setting where they have readily access to a team that's willing to help the patient. So it can be done if it's really essential to that patient's treatment. Again, a multidisciplinary discussion between, you know, looking at risk versus benefit. So the door isn't completely closed, but I certainly, you know, wouldn't do it outside of a well-controlled environment. Dr. Dent, thank you for sharing that challenging real-life case and for that great review of cardiotoxicities associated with fluoropyrimidines and the risk factors for those toxicities. The last patient that we'll transition to patiently waiting for us is a 56-year-old gentleman with a 45-pack-year smoking history and recently diagnosed lung mass on a chest x-ray done by his PCP for persistent cough. He sees our cardiology clinic for management of his CAD and hypertension. He came to see you before his scheduled biopsy. Patients with lung cancer frequently require treatments with multiple potentially cardiotoxic agents, such as platinum-based chemotherapy, TKIs targeting EGFR mutations or ALK rearrangements, ICI, and or radiotherapy. Dr. Dent, what do you watch out for specifically in lung cancer patients? Are there any particularities to their management that we should be aware of? Well, thanks for asking that question. I think in lung cancer patients, it's particularly important to do a risk assessment and risk stratify these patients. Many of them are smokers, as is this patient. They have underlying cardiovascular risk factors. They may have pre-existing coronary artery disease. And then when you offer them cancer therapies, such as TKIs, Certainly, we know these agents are associated with a high risk of hypertension. If they already have underlying hypertension, then they are certainly in a situation where they may need more proactive approach to management of those cardiovascular risk factors. So I definitely would have them seen by my cardiology or cardio-oncologist colleague. I'd have their risk factors assessed. We try to optimize management of all their risk factors prior to starting their cancer therapy. And then once they go on cancer therapy, I think, you know, you have to be extremely careful, educate the patient, have them take blood pressures that they can, because particularly with the TKIs, we know the blood pressure can go up quite high and it can go up quite rapidly. So they'll need to be closely monitored for that particular toxicity. Then when you introduce other classes of drugs, such as immune checkpoint inhibitors, we know those drugs are associated with cardiovascular toxicity, in this case, myocarditis. And although rare, sort of reported in probably 1% to 2% of patients who are treated, certainly pretty devastating if you do develop ICI-induced myocarditis because the fatality rate can be up to 50%. So these patients also have to be well-educated if they develop symptoms to come see you very quickly. And the team, your team has to be educated. The hospital has to be educated about having a low index of suspicion when these patients present. And in this guideline, this ESC guideline, by the way, as this is a very fast-moving, involving field, there are a criteria to help us try and diagnose ICI-induced myocarditis. And then, of course, if they're getting radiation, particularly if it involves the heart in the radiation field, which it may, that can cause problems. And importantly, 
you know, it's not just the heart. It, they're also, we have to think about the impact of radiation on all the vessels. So that radiation field includes some of the head and neck area. Certainly that can lead to vascular damage from the radiation. So radiation is not just, you know, valvular heart disease and what it does to coronary artery disease. It can cause many, many issues. So this patient that you've presented has underlying smoking history, coronary artery disease, hypertension. I think this patient really needs to be closely managed in a multidisciplinary team and have be highly educated around what they need to monitor while on these therapies. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Dent, for going through all of these cases. This really begins to give us an appreciation for the incredible variety of cancer therapy-related cardiac dysfunction and, and toxicities that we may encounter. But clearly, we are just barely scratching the surface. Sarah, Philip, Theo, thank you so much for bringing these cases to our attention. And Dr. Den, thank you for giving us this comprehensive overview of how to tackle cardiotoxicity in a few solid tumors. Now, Dr. Dent, it's time for our favorite question of the episode. What makes your heart flutter about cardio-oncology? Well, how ironic is that heart flutter in cardio-oncology? <laughs> I mean, I, I have to say that I've been fortunate enough over the last two decades of my career to see such amazing advances in cancer therapy. It truly is remarkable how individuals are now surviving a cancer diagnosis and also importantly, living with cancer so that cancer for some patients is now becoming a chronic disease. And if we are to continue to build on those successes, we as oncologists really have to look at not only preventing, but really looking after the cardiovascular health of our patients. And so I do not want to see stories such as I did a few years ago, a colleague of mine from the UK had a patient in Vancouver, 45-year-old breast cancer patient who was celebrating finishing her breast cancer treatment, and she ended up in CCU and heart failure. And so if we are to continue to make these great advances, we have to realize that there's a potential cost. We have to be proactive to try and prevent cardiovascular toxicity. As oncologists, we do not want to wait until our patients develop these toxicities we want to try and prevent them to begin with. And that's really speaks to what we talked about in this podcast is risk gratification and then really looking at prevention strategies for those patients that are at highest risk. And we owe it to our patients to do that because no longer is it adequate just to think about a patient as having cancer. We have to take a more holistic approach to patient care and we have to think about the entire individual and the consequences of our cancer treatment on that patient so that they can go on, hopefully, to live a long and productive life. Dr. Dent, your dedication to your patients and to developing the field of cardio-oncology is absolutely inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. A special thank you to Philip for his hard work on the script and on finding challenging cases from his own clinical practice to emphasize this multidisciplinary approach. Stay tuned for much more cardio-oncology in the next episodes of the CardioNerds Cardio-Oncology Series.
Welcome cardio nerds. My name is Dr. Susan Dent. I'm a medical oncologist and co-director of the cardio oncology program at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. I'm also the current president of the International Cardio Oncology Society, an international society with over 900 members from 23 chapters or countries. It is hardly our vision to eliminate cardiovascular disease as a barrier to providing the optimal cancer treatment for our patients. And we do this through collaborative interaction with our colleagues globally, focusing on education, clinical care, and research. We as an organization have committees that oversee these objectives, but also we have a number of working groups, including a nursing working group, pharmacy working group, as well as an exercise group. And most recently, we've actually added in a survivorship working group. In order to advance education and work with our colleagues globally, we have hold a number of weekly webinars where we share information, clinical and research. And also we have the opportunity for those members to become fellows of the International Cardio-Oncology Society. This is done through taking a certification exam, which really ensures that people who are out there practicing cardio-oncology have a baseline level of knowledge. We've recently introduced centers of excellence. This really speaks to your organization and the degree of clinical care, education and research that you provide. And there certainly are different levels depending on how engaged and how specialized you are in this field. There are many, many opportunities within our organization to collaborate and to learn from our group. And I would encourage you to visit our website at ic-os.org. We would welcome your participation and having you join our organization. I would also say you could reach out to our executive director, Stephen Caselli, at director, ICOS, all one word, at gmail.com. So cardio nerds, I hope you enjoy this podcast on cancer treatment related cardiac dysfunction, and hopefully we'll see you at some of our future meetings in the near future. Thank you. Boop. Boop.